1: If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash Munger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. The invasion courses eastward and reaches its final goal, Moscow. The capital is taken, The Russian army suffers heavier losses than the opposing army suffered at any time during previous wars from Austerlitz to Wagram. But all at once, instead of chance and genius that had so consistently led him by an unbroken series of successes to the predestined goal, a succession of counter-chances occurred, from the cold in his head at Borodino to the frosts and the spark that set fire to Moscow. And instead of genius... Stupidity and unprecedented baseness are displayed. The invaders flee, turn back, flee again, and now the chances are not for Napoleon, but consistently against him. Leo Tolstoy, 1869. 210 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. To green screen and second decade, the podcast that once wanted to be Napoleon but now realizes he's a madman. <laughs> I'm Sean Munger. I'm Cody Climber. This is a crossover episode with Second Decade. Uh, it's going to come out on the feeds of both shows, so we're really kind of doing double duty here and those of you who are listeners of regular listeners of second decade this is aside from the occasional intros this is the first time you've ever heard anyone other
0: than me on this podcast so (laughs) so welcome cody climber ah hello sean munger dr sean munger (laughs) this is our our other podcast and it's the
1: environmental movie podcast So, I thought we would do a crossover episode and we'll we'll explain a little bit about what we're going to do with that. But just to get started for Greenscreen, we're podcastgreenscreen at gmail.com. Our Twitter is greenscreen underscore pod. And we have an Instagram, Greenscreen Pod. So, I founded Second Decade a long time ago and it wasn't when I didn't know what Instagram was and wasn't cool enough to have a separate twitter for it or even a separate email so (laughs) (laughs) so that's why that's why it's so basic on the uh, on the second decade side as i said this is a crossover episode with second decade and for those of you who are second decade fans this will be an introduction to green screen which is our environmental movie podcast where we watch and discuss popular films with environmental themes or in which nature or the environment play a major role And we end up, we have ended up doing a lot of environmental history on that show. We've we've been at it for a year now. I think it's a year, a year this the week of recording actually. Wow, we've discussed a lot of historical topics as well, and some interesting cinema stuff. So uh, that's a lot of fun. And uh, Cody, my co-host, also my husband. So uh, that's (laughs) interesting. And for the green screen fans who may not know about my other podcast, second decade is a historical podcast that I've been running since late 2016. There's a lot of environmental history on, uh, on the show too. So if, if you're into that aspect of green screen, then uh, give second decade a try. You might, you might like it. And I know there are some people who listen to both shows and I think that's terrific. Yeah. So for this crossover episode, We imagined, tried to imagine kind of a Venn diagram where the the scope of the two podcasts meet. We're going to do a movie that takes place in the 18-teens and arguably has environmental themes, and so that leads us naturally to War and Peace. Yeah. Yeah, so just to... There's several film versions of War and Peace, and we are specifically... Concerned in this episode with the BBC One miniseries from 2016, the most recent version. Real early in the run of Second Decade, back in the first season, I did a kind of a filler episode that was about the Second Decade on film. I think, in fact, I think that was the title of that episode. And I know that I mentioned very briefly this miniseries. So this is not the first time that the Second Decade listeners have heard of this, but I didn't really get that deep into it on that show, which was just a capsule summary of the somewhat rare times that the 18 teens has ever appeared in a mainstream film. It's not an era that you see depicted very often.
0: Oh, yeah. This Master and Commander comes to mind. So that's about – Is that a little bit before, a little after? Yeah, it's a little before. That takes place in 1805. So,
1: really, most of the film depictions of the 18 teens tend to be either stuff like this or their, you know, Jane Austen, Regency England, often romances or yeah. kind of social you know, social commentary. On green screen, we did Great Expectations, the adaptation, the 1946 David Lean adaptation of the Dickens novel, and the opening parts of Great Expectations evidently take place in 1812. So that is a rare example of this era on film as well. Okay, so the way we start here, we'll go through the technical details, we'll give a brief synopsis, and then we'll talk about some history issues, and then some cinema purely cinema issues so let's launch into the technical for war and peace as i said this is the bbc one miniseries and i'm going to mispronounce this but it was produced by bbc kimroo kim kimroo is that right oh Kimru. man yeah Kimru say, Wales. Uh, the word we're looking at is spelled c m c y m r u i'm sure it has some bizarre pronunciation that i've never heard of Cymru. Cymru? Cymru. Who knew? So (laughs) Cymru, Wales. So it's the sixth major adaptation of the Leo Tolstoy novel published in 1869. There was a silent film version made in Russia in 1915, a 1956 movie starring Henry Fonda and Audrey Hepburn, which was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who came up in our dune episode on green screen.
0: Yeah. He's uh he's a figure of of fame and infamy, I guess maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, really interesting career and our dune episode goes into his his very fascinating background. The most large-scale production of War and Peace was a version made in the Soviet Union in the 1960s and I know Cody you're going to be talking more about that specifically but that was directed by Sergei Bondarchuk. I didn't know this before I researched it, but there was a previous BBC series of War and Peace made in 1972, which interestingly featured a young Anthony Hopkins as in the in the Pierre Bezukhov role. Yeah, and then there was a 2007 TV miniseries made in Belgium,
0: which was like also kind of like a Russian co-production. Yeah, on that one too. This one was directed by Tom Harper, a veteran British TV
1: director. Biggest project other than this was Peaky Blinders, which I have never seen, but I know a lot of British people talk about it, so I know it's a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's done a lot of stuff with Amazon Prime. Oh. He did a well-received episode of Electric Sheep, which is adaptions of Philip K. Dick stuff, and then also Aeronauts which got kind of mixed reviews, but was one of their more popular films that they've done. So this series was written by Welsh writer
1: Andrew Davies, and you've remarked several times that this miniseries was very Jane Austen-like, and that that is not an accident. Yeah. A Dave, Davies wrote the famous 1995 Pride and Prejudice BBC adaptation that also got mentioned on my episode about Second Decade on Film. That's the one with wet Colin Firth. (laughs) Yeah. He also wrote an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, but not the same as the Sense and Sensibility directed by Ang Lee, which was written by Emma Thompson. And that came out the same year, 1995, but they're separate productions. In fact, he wrote the 2008 Sense and Sensibility to try to replace the 1995 version, because evidently some people didn't like it. Mm. I've, I've... a uh, profile Jane Austen on Second Decade. So she is well known to listeners. So usually when we talk about the technical aspects of movies, we talk a little bit about their making and the circumstances. And we don't know that much about the making of this. TV productions are not as well documented as as big movies are. So it's harder to find details on it. But we do know it was filmed in Latvia and Lithuania and a bit in Russia. And it apparently took about two and a half years to make. There were five one hour episodes and then the finale, which was eighty two minutes long. and that's the one that we saw. but we saw it split into two parts, but it was originally aired as one as one part. The series began airing on January third, two thousand sixteen. in the UK it was simulcast in various other European countries. And it got uh, very good notices. British race newspapers raved about it. The Telegraph called it one of the five greatest TV adaptations of all time. I don't know if I'll go that far, but <laughs> it, it got pretty pretty good reviews. Yeah. So this is this is a well respected version of War and Peace.
0: Okay, so ready for the synopsis? <laughs> yeah, just yeah. get dropped in here at yeah. the uh, at the climax of the series, right? Right. So just to be clear, we
1: have seen the whole series before, but for purposes of this show, we're only discussing the finale. So the war and peace story, I am not as ambitious enough to attempt to summarize war and peace. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners are breathing a big sigh of relief on that one. Yeah. It was a but little
0: interesting to like drop in at the end because I've, I remember you saying like, wait a second, who's who? Yeah. And then we're like about five minutes. And we're, like, oh, yeah. Okay. Now I remember.
1: So the whole war and peace story begins in 1805 outside of the second decade. But the climax of the story takes place against the backdrop of the French invasion of Russia in 1812. So that brings us into into our orbit of the 18-teens. A young Russian nobleman, Pierre Bezhukov, played by Paul Dano, he's adrift. He's estranged from his wife who's cheating on him, and he's looking for answers in his life. Although he's a civilian, he somehow ends up wandering around the battlefield at Borodino, a great battle where the Russian army commanded by General Kutuzov, played played by Brian Cox, is ready to go up against the French army of Napoleon. And Napoleon is played, it's just a cameo, but played by a French actor, Matthew Kasovitz. Pierre witnesses the horrors of war during this battle. Unbeknownst to him, his friend Andrei Bolkonsky, one of the other major characters of this story, played by James Norton. He's a Russian officer. He's mortally wounded. Takes a while to die. And meanwhile, the heroine, Natasha Rostova, Played by Lily James and her family. She previously had a love affair with Andre. They are planning to flee their Moscow estate as Napoleon closes in. So, just as everyone else flees Moscow, Pierre is going into Moscow. He's got a half baked scheme to kill Napoleon. He doesn't even get close to this when he's captured by the French and then he's brought with them as a prisoner after the city burns down. So we've got the great fire of Moscow that occurs, and then he is kind of with the column of the army retreating. Uh, Napoleon is driven out. Pierre's wife kills herself in a failed abortion attempt. Some of the other minor characters that have been drifting through the story, the film resolves their character arcs, none of which we really need to go into. So after the war, Pierre marries Natasha. He's apparently had a thing for her the entire time. Because, so of course, mi- it's
0: a love triangle that right. had to get resolved by killing one of the guys off. Yeah, Andre,
1: right. So Pierre marries Natasha, and then we have a happy final scene, basically showing their family yucking it up at a big outdoor picnic with lots of cute kids. And Pierre gives some very Tolstoyan ruminations on the, on the meaning of life. We pan to an oak tree and then smash the credits. Yeah. Okay, are you impressed with how quick that took what? Three minutes, four minutes? <laughs> are you impressed with how quickly I just summarized war and peace? Yeah. <laughs> Check out our holes episode, by the way, <laughs> where I think we spent forty minutes on the synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a that's about a hundred minute movie, so yeah. Weird how these things work. Yeah. We next move into sort of the history portion. Usually on green screen, I try to do a lot of environmental history specifically environmentally based history. So if you're not familiar with how we do this on our recent episode on the film Strange Days, we delve very deeply into the environmental and racial geography of Los Angeles. We talked extensively about the 1992 riots, about how this is all affected by the environments of LA. It's a lot harder to do this with war and peace, so we're going to have some more general history as opposed to specifically environmental history. Interestingly, though, part of the reason why we we kind of have to do that is because while I was researching this episode, I discovered there's kind of a shocking lack of real deep scholarship from environmental historians specifically about the Napoleonic Wars, I'm talking just about the Napoleonic Wars. There's plenty of environmental history about this era, but not that much specifically relating to the conflicts. And that's a little unusual because large-scale wars, World War II to a less much lesser extent, World War I, but also Persian Gulf conflicts and things like that, Vietnam often attract environmental historians who want to Study how these conflicts affect the environment and vice versa. I could not find a lot on the Napoleonic Wars and the environment, so I found that very strange. So, so get on the ball, environmental historians. You need to do more on the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> so, in 2017, early in the run of second decade, I did a three-part series called Napoleon and Russia, which went very deeply into the history of this event. I'm not going to rehash all of that, but there are some things that come up again. So if, if you've heard that series, that you'll probably hear some things again, and hopefully some new things uh, also. Really so good I, series
0: I, of episodes there. I've, yeah, thank you. I like those, yeah.
1: The finale of War and Peace begins at the Battle of Borodino. This occurred on September 7th, 1812. Borodino is a city, a, a village really, along the road to Moscow, this was the single bloodiest engagement of the entire Napoleonic Wars and was, in fact, the, I believe, the biggest battle of all time up until the Battle of the Marne in World War I, which was in 1914, 102 years later. So this was a really big deal. Due to the lack of good roads and there's a huge geographic obstacle in Russia called the Pinsk Marshes, which is located mostly in what's now the country of Ukraine. This is not real visible just by looking at a map, but it's there and it's huge. And it's this gigantic patch of marshy ground. But because of this, there's really only a couple of major pathways down which a large army can march on its way to Russia from the west. So Napoleon followed the central route that went just around the edge of these marshes, the same route was taken by Hitler's army in 1941. Now, Hitler had three armies: a north, a center, and a south group. And the north and center, the north and south groups took different routes, but the center group, which was the main thrust toward Moscow, that was pretty much the same route that Napoleon took in 1812. And the Germans found this area as problematic as Napoleon did. In World War II, Hitler and his army were surprised. Because the ground in, they were used to fighting on the ground in Western Europe, which is usually solid and open, and the roads are plentiful. They're very easy to get around. This is not true in Eastern Europe and Russia. The ground here is marshy and unstable, and what few roads there are, and there are not very many of them, they turn to mud in both spring and fall. And this is the inescapable geographical reality of getting into Russia with a, with a large army. You just you have to deal with that. So the conventional wisdom, the lie that Napoleon managed to tell himself and a large portion of the world believed it, the lie is that his invasion was defeated by winter weather. And this is just not true. Napoleon's army was in serious trouble long before they even crossed the Niemen River, which in the 19th century marked the traditional boundary between Poland and Russia. So even before he started his army was in very bad trouble the army was way too big and it consumed too many resources and they just couldn't keep it supplied so it was doomed from the from the outset uh, when he left poland in june 1812 he had about 286,000 men that were worth anything total numbers and i don't i admit i don't know how how these numbers break down but there are some estimates that his army was as large as 600,000 but that does not that's not an accurate number of combat ready troops that he had so this i mean this is a gigantic army by 19th century standards lincoln had a famous metaphor moving troops is like shoveling fleas across a barn huh. so like really only about half of them get to where you're sending them yeah so by the time Napoleon got to Borodino this is even before he gets to Moscow he's down to about 161,000 and not all of those were in fighting strength. So his army is kind of like a like a snowball on the, on top of a hot range you know it's just kind of sliding around and losing more of itself every minute that goes by. In the Napoleon and Russia series of Second Decade, I included an anecdote of French soldiers being so low on water that they were drinking their horses' piss. This was before Borodino and long before the retreat started. So that that shows you what kind of trouble they were in from the very beginning. And I use the term French soldiers loosely because Napoleon's army was cobbled together with men from most of the countries that he had conquered or were allied with France. So a lot were Germans, there were Poles, Czechs, Spaniards, Austrians, etc. Many of them couldn't even speak French, which made obeying their French commanders somewhat difficult. Interestingly, and I talk about this, I did another series on Napoleon's return after he escaped from Elba. His wars didn't even really begin to bite deeply into the French people themselves until the very end, until 1814, 1815. He kind of run through all of those proxy troops that he culled from other countries and finally had to start drafting large numbers of ordinary Frenchmen as opposed to military class or volunteers. And this is one of the reasons why he became unpopular toward the end of his reign. So the battle scene in War and Peace, there's a brief depiction of Napoleon standing on a hill, giving orders to his uh, adjutants. This is not entirely accurate. The day of the battle, Napoleon was sick. Not only did he have a cold, he had a a really bad cold that day, but he also suffered from a chronic condition called dysuria, which is basically where your pee is filled with sediment. That's very painful. So he was not standing, he was sitting down, and he didn't move for much of the battle. There's a painting done by a Russian artist in 1897 that accurately depicts the, the command staff looking overlooking the battle of borodino and I'll I'll put that on the website so the way that the battle is shown in this in this film I think is is generally pretty accurate at least within the constraints of a bbc tv show so in order to depict a napoleonic battle accurately you would of course it would have to be a lot more bloody than this we've got a soldier who's been ripped in half from cannon fire that's pretty gruesome and of course we have a hospital scene almost obligatory in in one of these films yeah because of media i think we have kind of a warped view of napoleonic era warfare particularly from tv shows and and reenactments we tend to think of napoleonic era warfare as as very clean there's you know guys in these tall hats with feathers on them and these very elegant uniforms marching across a grassy field and you know, it's all nice, and you could go out there with your kids on a Sunday afternoon and, and watch. And it was not like that. In reality, it was, it was a lot more like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, except yeah. the weapons were a lot less accurate. So, really this, Like
0: the uh, beginning of Lincoln?
1: Yes, yes. That's, a, that's a, a, a much more realistic depiction of 19th century warfare. So I find it interesting that the the movie kind of fudges at least to some degree who actually won the Battle of Borodino, and the book kind of does this as well. In reality, it was pretty much a draw. Kutuzov's army was broken during the battle, and he had to retreat, but he had inflicted such heavy losses on Napoleon that the French were greatly weakened as well. So they, they kind of both lost, really. But both Kutuzov and Napoleon both thought they had won and loudly kept repeating to their staff members that they had won. Kutuzov wrote a, a letter to the czar proclaiming that he won. Kutuzov, in fact, even blew up at one of his officers who dared to suggest that the battle meant they had lost Moscow, which in fact it did.
0: You know, thinking about the source material, like you mentioned, like the Russian view of the battle, a literary take on it rather than historical take, So you can kind of like see where this movie and the book are kind of coming from. Right. To some
1: degree, especially in the later 19th century, the French invasion of Russia was very much co-opted into kind of a nationalist narrative. Uh, the 1812 overture, very much that in that vein, it's a triumphalist narrative. kind of like how the the Soviets eventually treated World War II, which they call the Great Patriotic War. They're, they're not going to pullity punches about talking about who won who won battles here. They're going to spin it as, as victories for them. So we have a lot of in the middle of the uh, of this finale, we have a lot of scenes in Moscow and they they're pretty accurate, I think. After Kutuzov made the decision not to fight for Moscow and they show us that, the place basically became a madhouse. Uh, rich people fled with everything they could load onto their under onto their carts. Poor people broke into houses, stole everything that that was uh, left behind. And part of the tragedy of the retreat from Moscow is that it killed huge numbers of civilians. There were lots and lots of people, not soldiers, following the French army for whatever reason. And most of them were trying to carry away as much loot as possible. And many of those people died as well. So it's not just soldiers that died. So the Russians, who above all, wanted to avoid facing Napoleon in large open set-piece battles, Borodino being, being an exception, uh, but they definitely waged environmental warfare. And this is why it's so surprising to me that there isn't more environmental scholarship on this. So the key factor here is because of the marshes and the roads, there was really only one way into Russia, which meant there was also only one way out. And Napoleon's huge army consumed so many local resources wherever it moved. Uh, troops were – you know, they weren't supplied from a central depot or whatever. That's a modern thing. Yeah. So uh, troops would commandeer livestock, grain, potatoes, anything, any, everything they could they could eat or carry away. And so the army tended to kind of suck the landscape dry of anything that was useful. And they would leave a wasteland – in, in their wake. So farms would be destroyed and stripped bare. There'd be no livestock, no grain, nothing.
0: This is like how it had been done for centuries anyway. Oh, yeah. Like, this is how it was done through, like, medieval period and, and like, through the Renaissance and everything. So right, this wasn't right. a new way of, of fighting.
1: No, it certainly wasn't. Uh, it, what was new was the scale on which Napoleon attempted this. mm mm-hmm. Because he raised the largest armies that had ever been fielded before. And the, the way this had worked in ancient and medieval times, I mean, you don't really have a standing army. That's a that's a very modern thing. Where you're going to go on campaign, you raise an army for a season or whatever. You know, it's it's the springtime. And it's like, oh, we're going to go invade this country or that country. So you get your army together and you give them weapons and they kind of rampage through the landscape. You fight your battles, whatever the results of the battles are, then you go home, basically. And then there's no operations again until the next spring. So that's the old, like, kind of ancient and medieval cycle of warfare.
0: Yeah. And now it's, like, half of a of a war is, like, you have your troops kind of marching forward, taking territory. And then, like, the other half of your army is just running supplies up to that front line so that they can keep on going forward rather than ransacking houses for food. Right. And and, I mean, this kind of thing was really drove military
1: decisions. I mean, part of the reason why Gettysburg was the site of a major battle in the in the American Civil War is because there was a shoe factory there and Lee's army was running out of shoes. So the point is, and the reason why we're talking about this kind of resource drain, when Napoleon would go on campaign, or at least earlier in his career, he would always try to send his army back from the major campaign areas by a different route than they had come. And that makes sense because he wanted to be sure that there were fresh farms and resource areas to sustain the army on its march back. And this was not possible in Russia because there was only one road in. So the only way that he could possibly sustain his army on the way back from Moscow was if they were able to load up supplies while they were in Moscow. That was the whole game. And this makes Kutuzov's strategy very simple. His whole strategy was to make sure that Napoleon could not gain anything from taking Moscow. I find it very curious that the movie version of War and Peace avoids the big question that Tolstoy in the book is very eager to to make, to stake his claim on. Tolstoy insisted that Moscow was not deliberately burnt. September of 1812, Napoleon went to Moscow. He occupied the city. No one came out to surrender to him, which is what he expected. And so he's kind of waiting around for somebody to surrender. No one comes, and then the city burns down shortly after French troops get there. So, Tolstoy insisted that the fire was started accidentally by the campfires of French soldiers and that it was basically inevitable. And the movie is very careful not to show us how the fire starts.
0: Yeah. It's kind of interesting. They just kind of, whenever Natasha's family is at their, I guess they're kind of their country estate outside of the city, they're looking out and there's just like, you know, the fire on the horizon, kind of like doing like a false sunrise. And that's how they introduce the fire.
1: Yeah, and and there are lots of eyewitness accounts of that that they would people would look off toward the horizon, they'd be like, wow, what's that what's that big glow on the horizon? You know, oh, that's Moscow burning. In reality, there is considerable evidence that the city was deliberately burned. After the fact, several uh, what they call fuses, which were basically piles of flammable material that were set up in various strategic areas. A lot of these were found, and these were supposedly ordered, placed there by the royal governor of Moscow, Count Fyodor Rostopochin. Rostopchin also sabotaged the city's firefighting equipment. Rostopochin is mentioned in the film in dialogue. I think, I think the Greta Scacci character has a line about him, but I think that's all the mention he gets. So after the war, Rostopchin, who survived, he tried to salvage his reputation by publishing a pamphlet in 1823 where he claims that he did not set fire to Moscow deliberately. However, he later repudiated this claim. And apparently admitted that, yes, in fact, he did uh, mastermind the whole thing. Uh, historically, the jury is out on whether he plotted this with Kutuzov. There's no smoking gun in the historical sources that proves that it was uh, Kutuzov's idea. But if you step back and look at the whole thing in context, it doesn't make any sense that he wouldn't at least have been in on it if it wasn't his idea in the first place. Yeah so we're i mean we're engaging in some speculation here which is which is a little dangerous in history but i think it's supportable because if you think about it if napoleon leaves moscow empty-handed especially if he's low on food then you can guarantee the eventual destruction of his army because you know that they will not be able to supply themselves on the retreat back so you can you could destroy the entire french army without really attacking them and Rostopochen was put in charge of the quote unquote defense of Moscow it wasn't much of a defense but if you're kutuzov why would you not tell your man on the scene to burn down the whole city to make sure absolutely sure that Napoleon can't get anything useful from it that that's going to be your first order so this is fundamentally an environmental strategy not a military strategy it's environmental it's about where food comes from it's about what kind of terrain the army, will be marching through and it's about of course it's about the weather which you know especially if you can if you can delay Napoleon's departure which is is what happened then the weather is just going to be the coup de gras so the idea that the that Napoleon was defeated by the weather by the harsh climate of Russia it's true but it's a very small part of the truth and to blame it all on that is really a distortion yeah so I think the key to understanding the whole story, of Napoleon's invasion of Russia is the environment.
0: Eventually, the movie goes into Moscow while it's burning, and that's where Pierre Pauldano's character gets captured whenever he's going through the city trying to find Napoleon, and he gets sidetracked trying to rescue a, a child from a burning house that's being ransacked by French soldiers at the same time. It's one of those things where anybody that was involved is going to be all over the place about where their guilt in the matter you know we've been watching that um, understanding Russia series on uh, from great courses mm-hmm. which listeners if you most likely your local library you can get a digital kind of subscription include as far as your library card for Canopy which has great courses videos on it and there's really great ones about the Renaissance and this one we're watching on Russia it makes me you mentioning the pamphlet makes me think about something that was mentioned in that series about Catherine the Great and uh, supporting publishing of like you know different, uh, different people in the ruling class and just kind of like in general. So I kind of imagine the governor's pamphlet talking about how he wasn't involved in the how he was being like kind of influenced by that Catherine the Great pamphlet sure. kind of movement.
1: There was a lot of revisionism going on in the years after the war was over. And some people were being kind of disingenuous about their roles in it. The environments of Russia and Moscow took a long time to recover from the invasion. Vast areas of Moscow were still in ruins in 1817, five years after the disaster. There's a famous map. I think I may have put it on the on the website for the original Napoleon and Russia series, but we'll, we'll put it on the on the website again. That shows the the burned out Moscow from 1817. Perhaps a million people died directly as a result of the invasion, but lingering effects of food insecurity and disease and things like that must have killed a lot more in kind of a slow motion effect. And of course, farms had to be rebuilt. There were ecosystems devastated by the invasion, that sort of thing. This would have taken a long time to to recover from. And I don't know if much has been written about that process. It would be interesting to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I also might not have just dug deep enough. We have to do the research for these episodes fairly quickly. So if I had access to my university library like I did in the early days of second decade, maybe it would be a different story. I don't know. Yeah So the book, War and Peace kind of hints at this rebuilding process, and I like that those hints make it into the movie version. Mm-hmm. The final scene, the oak tree where Pierre's family has their picnic is kind of a symbol of longevity and renewal in the story. I have a very ancient paperback copy from 1968, a very old copy of War and Peace. Before the cover got ripped off, it featured an oak tree on the cover illustration. So that that's a key image in the story. And Pierre's Summary voiceover talks about how people's terrible experiences make them who they are. This is sort of a build back better type of message is currently in vogue especially when talking about how we recover from climate change and other environmental disasters. So that's I find that an interesting vein that the movie taps into and that's directly from the book. Yeah. Uh, Tolstoy himself was something of an environmentalist. He is remembered in history as a Christian anarchist. Entrenched deeply in the moral philosophy of Christ, which he loved to talk about, but he also harshly criticized government, aristocracy, and society in, in Russia. In 1886, he wrote a nonfiction book called What is to be Done, criticizing the conditions of late imperial Russia. That book got him in hot water with the Tsar's secret police, who uh, were watching everybody at this point in time. Yeah. Tolstoy, who who was born an aristocrat, he lived and worked at his estate called Yasnaya Polyana in the countryside outside of Tula, Russia. This is a heavily forested estate, and a couple of disciples of his Tolstoyan movement lived there in his later years. He died in 1910, but they carried on simple lives of asceticism, sexual chastity, and vegetarianism, which was pretty radical in the late 19th century yeah Tolstoy wrote war and peace between 1862 and 1869 at this estate his wife Sonia was his secretary and she would copy his day's writing every night for him to edit the next day and at one point she estimated she copied the entire text of war and peace something like six times <laughs> so <laughs> that's oh, uh crazy yeah a sisyphean task definitely the novel, War and Peace, is about 561,000 words. I saw one estimate of 580,000. I don't know the reason for the discrepancy there. By comparison, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind is 418,000 words. All three Lord of the Rings books together are 481,000. Moby Dick is about 209,000 words. You can tell I'm a writer because I'm speaking in terms of of words and not pages. It does does not matter how many pages a book is because the way you print it, you can you can make pages either really dense or really loose. So talking about the number of pages in a book is is kind of useless. It's words, not pages.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, Tolstoy's ascetic lifestyle at the end of his life and especially his explosive relationship with Sonia are dramatized in the novel and the 2009 movie The Last Station in which the recently deceased Christopher Plummer played Tolstoy. Brilliant performance. Uh Yeah. And Helen Murren played Sonia. That's a great movie. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Really great movie. The environmental aspects of life at Yasnaya Polyana are, so far as I can tell, portrayed more or less accurately, although the movie version was filmed in Germany, not Russia. But uh, highly recommended if you're interested in Tolstoy. Yeah. That's pretty much it for me in the the history aspects. So uh, do you want to talk about some of the cinema aspects?
0: Yeah. So this is going to be kind of wide and meandering. I kind of wanted to talk about the War and Peace adaptions. Uh, Like we mentioned at the beginning, it's been adapted, seems like, uh, every decade or two since the 50s. It's uh, been caught on film. But the earliest was that 1915 silent film that was made in Russia, which, interestingly, is like just about a, a year over a century from whenever this BBC one was released. And I was going to focus on the three major adaptions the De Laurentiis one, the Italian film from 56, a Russian film series that was done from 60 to 67, and then this British slash Welsh version from 2016. Like getting into the Italian version, it's kind of interesting. One of the things that always I find so jarring in movies is like the age differences. For instance, in the Italian version, Henry Fonda plays Pierre, who's 50 at the time. And Pierre is supposed to be about 20 in the book. And then Audrey Hepburn is his love interest as Natasha. And Audrey Hepburn's husband in real life played Andre, Mel Ferrer.
1: Mel Ferrer. Okay.
0: Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Not not Jose Ferrer. Not the Patochon. Emperor, Emperor from Dune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, different actor. So, of course, this is a De Laurentiis production because, of course, it's epic. De Laurentiis was always about whatever movie he was making was going to be the greatest movie ever made. And so adapting War and Peace would, of course, be something he would try to do. Uh, it was directed by uh, King Vidor, who a frequent collaborator with De Laurentiis. It got pretty mixed reviews, but did get a handful of Oscar nominations, including Best Director. In Vidor's version, a fair amount of the plot and story gets left on the cutting room floor to kind of focus on the love triangle between Pierre, Natasha, and Andre. And so that kind of leads us into the Russian series, which was released in 66 to kind of 67. You can do a whole thing on Soviet-era Russian films. They're kind of their own kind of special cinema, I think. And the Russian version was kind of released because of Vidor's version. It did end up getting released in Russia in the 50s and did pretty well. Kind of did better than it did elsewhere. And the Soviet government decided that uh, leading up to the 150th anniversary of the French invasion, they would try to do a war and peace film. And so it's like it took them a decade to put it all together. And no expense was spared. Museums provided authentic set decorations. They went to far and wide for the Russian military to like get the horses, uh, thousands of costumes were produced. There was a lot of jockeying to find a director. And after a lot of trauma and machinations, uh, Benderchuk finally was selected to do it. Yeah, he
1: he was not great. I've seen this version. It's so long. Yeah,
0: (laughs) it is very spectacular. There's no question about that.
1: But I also thought him casting himself as Pierre was not the best move.
0: Yeah, reading about its production and kind of analysis of it, uh, it's kind of interesting. When this came out, 66 to 67, well, production had begun in 61. This was a time of transition for the Soviet Union, where relations between the U.S. and the USSR were in flux. Under Khrushchev, there had been uh, more artistic freedom, and you can see that in films like uh, *Andrei Rublev*, which came out the same year that this came out. Could you like give like maybe kind of like a summation of of *Andrei Rublev* in kind of the con- context of *War and Peace*? Yeah, maybe.
1: Andrei Rublev a great film, a very Russian, very very long, very kind of brooding and contemplative. It's this grainy black and white. Tarkovsky was the director. Yeah. And it's sort of it's not really a unified story. It's kind of a a series of vignettes from the life, the supposed life of 14th century Russian icon painter Andrei Rublev. We don't know much about Andrei Rublev's life. In reality, but it's basically kind of his adventures through medieval Russia. There's a famous scene depicting, kind of echoing the French invasion of Russia, Tatars taking over Moscow and kind of the depredations that they inflicted upon the people of early Russia. Yeah, and it's a it's a super bleak world. I mean, it's it's you know your classic Russian literature worldview of you know life is meaningless and the world is pain and suffering and you know, let's worship God and salvage what we can from it. I mean that that's pretty much the the movie. But it's a beautiful film. It's really well made. Famous for an image of a horse on fire. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Which is it's kind of hard to watch. But uh but it is a great film.
0: Yeah. You know, this is kind of the end of that Khrushchev era where it's like, yeah, you could have something like Andrei Rublev and then you're going into the Brezhnev period where under him, there's a less freedom. There's a little bit more of stifling of the arts. And that's where War and Peace is kind of in production. It's, I haven't seen a, the, the Russian version personally, but let, reading about it, it sounds like it's kind of a piece of nationalist cinema, like in a way. It's kind of a set piece to show the greatness of Russian culture and art. And maybe there's a a little bit more focus on that than on the content of the novel that it's based off of. Yeah. Shot on 75 millimeter film, four movies, each kind of focusing on a different character, which is how the book was set up. So I don't know, it's just kind of like an interesting examination of where Russia is, was at the time that was made, rather than speaking about the time period the film portrays. You know, and then we come to the British slash Welsh version, which is what we watched. One of the executive producers was Harvey Weinstein. It was kind of hard not to find a Weinstein Company production for a few years. Yeah. Um, this is less than two years before the New York Times piece that kicks off the me too movement comes out which eventually led to his conviction of for sexual assault and sexual harassment in 2020 with this one i find this bbc version interesting but also like i kind of we talked about before it doesn't feel very russian feels like it has more in common with the usual regency fare that uh, you get from bbc when it comes to period dramas You know, in comparison to, like we were just talking about with Andrei Rublev, the kind of uh, dour existential Russian source material that you have. And looking at that, I think there's something to see in how these versions uh, examine and interpret the original novel. I go by the rule that the author is dead, and it's quite literal in this case. But if you happen to watch any of these, there might be something to kind of like examine about missing Tolstoy's original intent. Uh, you have Vidor's salacious focus on the love triangle, Bonderchuk in this like sense of nationalism or Harper's Regency tinted romantic view. I find it kind of interesting to take a look at the intent and execution that can- that comes across with war and peace. Well, it's An interesting
1: cultural artifact because it seems like the adaptations say more about the times in which they were made and and the lens through which they were made than they do about the original source material. Yeah. And I find that very interesting. I mean, Shakespeare does that too, where, of course, it's you're famous for- Recasting Shakespeare with the costumes or the set dressing or whatever, whatever period you want, and you're making a statement by that and that sort of thing. But it seems like War and Peace is kind of a version of that too.
0: Yeah. One last thing that you wanted to bring up, and it's definitely worthy of talking about, is how much Napoleon is in cinema. It's endless. You have James Tolkien in Woody Allen's Love and Death, one of one of the two really fun ones, uh, Ian Holm in Time Bandits, and Terry Camilleri in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure.
1: Notice all three of those are portrayals in which Napoleon is a comic figure. Yeah. Not a serious one, but a comic figure.
0: Yeah. yeah. Marlon Brando in Desiree, and uh, Rod Steiger in Waterloo, also directed by
1: Bondarchuk. He got the gig to direct Waterloo because of the 1966 version.
0: Yeah. And
1: that, of course, featured Rod Steiger as Napoleon. Christopher Plummer, again, he was in that as uh, as Wellington. Beautifully made film, thrilling battle sequences. The movie is a total dog in all other respects. It's just (laughs) – it's kind of unwatchable. Yeah. Okay, so we have a tradition on green screen that uh, one of our last segments is called That Guy. And this is named after the phenomenon where you see a familiar face in a movie and you point at the screen and say, who is that guy? And it's not gender specific. So there are that girls as well as that guys. So Paul Dano as Pierre Bezukov, much better choice than Bondarchuk, who was way too old
0: yeah What's
1: 50-something Henry Fonda. That's ludicrous. <laughs> ludicrous. Yeah. Paul Dano. Uh, I had a bit of a crush on Paul Dano for a number of years, but he's kind of grown out of that phase now. Although born in New York City, his family actually lived in New Canaan, Connecticut. The, huh. Yeah. The setting of our Thanksgiving special for green screen was on the ice storm, which takes place in New Canaan. So early roles included, he played a surly McDonald's employee in Fast Food Nation, came to prominence as the mute athlete in Little Miss Sunshine, and then he had a double role in There Will Be Blood, which is also on the green screen list. So we will see Paul Dano again. Yeah. Lily James, she's really up and coming. I love her. She's she's a treat in every movie. Yeah, she's great. And we're seeing her more and more often now, and that's really great. Uh, her breakthrough role was the live-action Disney Cinderella in 2015, which I have not seen, though it doesn't surprise me that they tried to make that. Uh, she previously appeared on Daughton Abbey and a film called the Guernsey Literary and Potato
0: Peel Pie Society, which was a good movie, as I recall. Yeah. She was also in Baby Driver. Uh, yes. Which, uh, she was. She was great in that. And uh, yeah, we'll be seeing her soon in The Dig. Yeah.
1: So the on green screen, The Dig is coming up in a couple of films. And yeah, great movie. Greta Scacchi plays Countess Rostova. She was sort of a favorite ingenue in the 80s and 90s. She appeared in movies like White Mischief and Presumed Innocent opposite Harrison Ford. And she also played Maria Cosway. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's girlfriend in Jefferson in Paris, which is the historical film that I could not convince the history by Hollywood podcast to do, (laughs) to do with me. Martin and Andrew were scared off by its 31% rotten tomatoes rating.
0: Uh, it's man, get into that movie. My, (laughs) yeah, it's,
1: it's, I I don't really know what to do with that film. I I rewatched it again recently and I, realize why people don't like it <laughs> so, i still like it but i realize why others don't yeah but anyway uh, greta Scacchi is a cl- an environmental and a climate change activist and i didn't know this she's also sean penn's mother-in-law
0: huh yeah. and uh, what what uh, role did she play was she natasha's mother
1: yes she was okay. the countess rostova okay Gillian Anderson has a bit part as hostess Anna Pavleva Scherer, and she also appears more prominently in some of the other episodes. Really, really versatile actor. She's great. Yeah. Most famous for the X-Files, but she's done all kinds of other fascinating roles. She
0: w- recently played Margaret Thatcher on The Crown. Great role for her. Uh, she's uh man, just watching her bow, which takes like a solid minute. She totally nails it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And she she
1: captured so perfectly just just how odious and unpleasant Margaret Thatcher really was. Yeah. OK, so uh, what do we want to say about uh, about war and peace in in summation?
0: Relatively enjoyable. I really I'd I love it for Lily James. I think she's really great as Natasha. And while I think her like chemistry with Paul Dano is kind of all over the place. For chemistry with the guy who plays Andre, I think is like properly smoldering. Like I said earlier, it's like I feel like there's something of the story that's kind of left on left untouched that's interesting. And I think though it's a complex story to try to capture in film, I think there should be more of an attempt to kind of address it.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I, I think as we've discussed, it's really hard to do war and peace in a film version. Yeah, you either have to do everything, and then it becomes so big that it loses all impact, and that was kind of the problem with the Soviet version, the Bondarchuk version, or else you you have to have such a light touch that it just turns into a melodrama, and that's the 1956 version. Yeah, so I think I think this series gets closer to that to the right balance, but I also agree that there's something fundamental about the book that it leaves out that it maybe should have tried harder to catch, but I also recognize how how difficult a job that would have been. Yeah. The battle scenes in this are great, especially oh, yeah. especially in a in a TV context. I think uh, Paul Dano is perfect as Pierre. And it it really doesn't have the richness of the novel, but it's hard to expect a movie to to pick that up really.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's because it's really hard to do Russian literature on film and and capture its its very deep richness.
0: Yeah, there's a Russian movie that will eventually do called Leviathan oh, that Leviathan. I think will probably probably do the best job. But it's also whew, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to be ready for that. Yeah, it, it's yeah. it's. We watched it one time a few years ago, whenever I first heard about it, and it's it's brutal, but it's kind of an amazing movie. Yeah, it, it's it's
1: long and slow, but it's it's a good movie.
0: So we'll uh, we'll
1: put War and Peace on our screwed up rating system, which is <laughs> fatally broken and very very confusing. But uh, I think we're going to stick with it. Yeah. So the way our rating system works on green screen, it's an inverse scale. It goes from one hundred to five hundred.
0: Yeah. it's based this... off parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. So right. uh, three fifty is salvageable, right? And above that is uh, is terrible. Below that is
1: better. So I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give War and Peace two twenty five. I think it's I think it's good. It's not great. It's enjoyable. I think History buffs will like it. I think people who've read the book. Both of you will <laughs> like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to give it. Uh, I'm going to go like 250. I guess it's it's fine. You know, there's some fundamental, like we said, that fundamental thing that's missing that uh, I'm super picky about, and so I can't can't quite give it anything better than that. But it's an admirable attempt. Yeah. So, okay, well, this uh,
1: has been a special, kind of a special and unusual episode of Second Decade. It's been a more conventional episode of Greenscreen, but if if you've never heard Greenscreen before, if this is your first exposure to it, you might want to come check us out. You've now got a taste of what we do, so I do hope you like it. There will be some more traditional Second Decade episodes coming. I've got a couple on the drawing board not sure when those are going to be out, as my schedule is not nearly what it was back in the early days. But I'm still at it, so, so yeah. it'll be fun. And then our next, if you want to tune in for green screen, our next film is going to be Parasite yes. from
0: 2019.
1: So that's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Did we already record that one? Yes. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. I have no idea yeah. what we've ever talked about. <laughs> it's 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 recorded, and then I flush it out of my brain. But that was, ah, that was fun to talk about.
1: Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Okay, so uh, join us in uh, two weeks' time on green screen for Parasite. And then hopefully there will be a new second decade within a month. I'm trying to keep to a monthly schedule on that. Can't promise, but going to do my best. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much, Cody. Uh, Thank you, Sean. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. If you're not familiar with my other podcast, Green Screen, check it out. It's available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like the environmental history aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. You can visit my website at seanmunger.com and see the online courses that are available now. I am back on Twitter, active again under sean underscore munger. I also have a YouTube channel, and it'd be great if you would subscribe there. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Special thanks to my co-host, Cody Clymer. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.